no introduction to today's sermon. I need to get on my horse and ride. I keep running out of time, and as I've shared with you, these aren't six individual talks. This is one talk, and I'm cutting it and starting it over again. Uh, we've been talking about the fact that the, we're in a conflict. We're in, we're, in, we're in pushback. We're in a war with the forces of darkness. And our, our, our talk started last week really with the title, It's Not a Fair Fight. And, and I had shared with you in these first two weeks how that our enemies are never people. Our enemies are demons. And so when you think about the fact that you and I as human beings have to do warfare against the dark, invisible forces, and again, we, we, we said we're not talking about Hollywood's version of demons. They're spirits. They're sophisticated. They're fallen angels. They're very powerful. It's not at all what the movies make it look like. We're, we're in spirit warfare, spirit-to-spirit combat. And, uh, and when I thought about that, honestly, as I was getting ready for this talk months ago, I thought about the fact that this doesn't seem like a fair fight. If you and I as human beings have to engage superhuman angels, I mean, I remember one story in the Bible where one angel wiped out an army of 185,000. I'm thinking, look, if I got to fight the forces of the dark side, it's not a fair fight. Then I read a verse in the Bible where I realized, yeah, I was right. It's not a fair fight. It's not fair for the demons, all right? Because as soon as, and here's the thing. What Satan, the last thing Satan wants you to hear is what we've been talking about the last two weeks. I promise you. He would do anything in the world. And see, you're, you spoiled him already because you've, you've already heard it. And, and there's no way you can ever be kept from it again. The Bible says this, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. That is something that Christians need to get. We do not fight with the weapons the world fights with. Certainly, we don't fight with physical weapons. We don't fight with icing people out. We don't fight with getting even. We don't fight by lying on people who've lied on us. We don't fight by going ballistic with our tempers. All the weapons that the world uses, we don't fight with those weapons. The Bible says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. We said last week the word divine is is a word for God. So think about this. The weapons that you and I fight with are God weapons. In other words, God has loaned us his weapons. God has uncorked some weapons for us that are God weapons. So that's why I'm telling you, it's not a fair fight for the enemy. It's not a fair fight for the forces of the dark side. That's why they don't want you to know about the weapons. And last weekend, we talked about one of the most powerful weapons that you and I have. It doesn't sound like a weapon, but it's extraordinarily powerful. We said it's the weapon of submission. When you submit yourself to God's will, when basically say, God, the world doesn't revolve around me, you're doing great stuff in the world, and who am I, like David said, when I consider the universe and the magnificence of it, who am I and what is man that you're mindful of him? It is when we see that and we say, God, not my, it's like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Gethsemane. let this cup pass from me. I, I don't want to deal with this, but nevertheless, not what I want, but it's what you want. And when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, it is It's something that's nuclear for Satan. He can't handle that. As we saw last week, he can't process it. He has nothing to match it. And and, and it's a good thing. I just want to say this. It is a good thing that we've been given divine weapons because we are in a huge fight. And I'll tell you the thing that probably excites me the most uh, before I get into today's weapon. What really excites me is you guys have talked to me, you've written me, and I've, I've heard you discuss this with each other. One thing that New Spring Church is getting is Ephesians 6.12. We're not fighting against people. That is one thing I am so glad. I keep hearing, hearing, hearing. In fact, there's a couple that wrote me says, changed our marriage. We just understood that we're not the enemy. We never fight against people. Remember this. If you're a Christ follower, you have no enemies today. You have no tension with anybody else. Even if other people think that they're your enemy, you don't have any enemies. Your enemy is not your wife, not your husband, not your kids, not your parents, not your in-laws, not the people in your neighborhood, isn't the people that you work with. And Christ followers, your enemy is not even people whose lifestyle is 180 degrees different from yours. See, the church is screwed up there. 
We've gotten the idea that people who live differently than what God says, somehow they're the enemy. Oh, they're fellow victims. Why, why would we go against fellow victims, okay? So uh, we never fight against people, and it just delights me that you're getting that because, you know, it's not uncommon for us to have nearly 5,000 people or so on a weekend, and it's never the same 5,000, you know. You know, a lot of you can maybe be here once or twice a month. We probably have eight or 9,000 people who attend New Spring regularly. And I just drove away from the service last week, and I said to Mary Alice, what would it be like if eight or 9,000 people could understand that we never fight against people? And it would change the world. It would, it, it would just radically change, certainly Wichita in the world, all right? I said no introduction, but I guess that was an introduction. All right. <clears throat> Let's look at a whole new weapon. It is th this week, it, it's not a fair fight, part two, and the title is Lifeline, okay? Lifeline. I wanted, in Ephesians chapter six, which is the definitive chapter in the Bible on spiritual warfare, it's the chapter that tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood, but it tells us that we're fighting against the forces of the dark side. In Ephesians chapter 6, skip down in the same context to verse 18, and look at what it says. It says, and pray, and pray. That's a divine weapon, all right? And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kind of prayers and requests. In other words, these are prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of adoration, uh, prayers of, that ask for requests. Uh, just prayers of telling God how you feel. All kind of, pray at all times, all kinds of prayers. And then obviously you're praying for yourself and then praying for the saints. Some of you came from a tradition in which you had to ask the saints to pray for you. But here the Bible says we're praying for the saints. But you got to understand, the biblical definition of saints is anybody who's trusted Jesus. All right? So you're a saint and I'm a saint. I'm Saint Mark. Just want to introduce myself. All right? <laughs> haven't done any miracles, haven't been canonized, but I'm Saint Mark. All right? Now, now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. After you pray for yourself, you're praying for fellow warriors. And then it says, Paul said, pray for me. He was their spiritual leader. Whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I'll fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So you're to pray for yourself. You're to pray for other believers. And if I'm your spiritual leader, you pray for me that when I get up to speak, that God will speak through me. Because nobody, I'm, I'm well cognizant of the fact that nobody gets up as early as you got up to come here, Mark Hoover. You came up to get a word from God. And so you pray for yourself, pray for other believers, and you pray for me that God will give me the word for you. Now, I've, I've set something up, and you need to know whether I can prove it or not. A number of you here at New Spring are attorneys, and you know that when you go to court, you have to cite either precedent or case law, and so I have to do the same thing. We don't, we're not part of a denomination here at New Spring. We're, we don't believe something just because a group of men sat in a room and made it up as they went along. We have to have precedent. I have set something before you. I have told you that prayer is a weapon. I've told you it's a weapon against the dark side. The question is, can I prove that? Can I open the Word of God, and can I prove to you that prayer is a weapon? Oh, boy, can I? What's the most famous prayer in the world? The Lord's Prayer, right? We call it that. The disciples had a hard time with prayer. They were like me. They struggled with prayer. I mean, they've been praying. You know, they grew up, a lot of them in religion, and they grew up saying prayers and reciting prayers. But uh, it's like, you know, I've, I've plunked around on the guitar, but when I listen to Larry, I realize I don't play the guitar, right? And so the disciples were that way. The disciples have been praying, but they realize they didn't pray like Jesus did. I mean, Jesus would pray all night sometimes, and he would get up long before daylight, and he would pray. And the disciples wanted him to teach them 
to pray. They didn't say teach us to preach or teach us to sing or teach us to lead. They said teach us to pray, all right? And that's when Jesus taught them the prayer that you and I know so well. Have you ever thought about the words of that prayer? Well, you know our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, forgive us our sins as we've already forgiven those who sin against us, and don't let us yield to temptation. What's the next line? But rescue us from the evil one. This is the prayer. I mean, think about these few topics that Jesus handles in prayer. And what is the last major plank of the Lord's prayer? It is rescue us from the evil one. Why? Because prayer is a weapon against the forces of the dark side. As I said a moment ago, Jesus always had a hard time getting his disciples to pray. Man, they wanted to do the stuff. They wanted to do the miracles. They wanted to preach. And, and one day, there was a man who brought his son to Jesus who was afflicted by a demon. That's another talk for another day. But clearly, this boy was really, he, he, this family had gotten in the crosshairs of the dark side, and this boy had suffered for it. And the man brought his boy to Jesus' disciples, and he asked them to help his boy. And I don't know what they did, but they tried for a long time. I don't know if they tried hoodoo or if they tried incantations or whatever they tried, but the disciples tried all kinds of things, and they couldn't help this man with his boy who was afflicted by the, by the demon. By this time, Jesus shows up. And the man whose faith now is weakened because of Jesus' disciples' inability to do anything, the man said to Jesus, if you can help me, could you help me? And Jesus said, that's not the question. The question is not, can I help you? The question is, can you believe? Hey, could I take a time out for a moment? A lot of people have the idea that God is tested. He's got to somehow prove himself. His proof has got to rise to the level of our acceptance. The test is not whether God can prove himself. The test is on us to see if we can believe. And so Jesus said, the question is not, can I help you? The question is, can you believe? And the guy said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus relieved the boy from the oppression of the dark side. Now, that's, I want to set that aside for a moment. It was after the family left that the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, why couldn't we do anything? Why couldn't we help this family? What was wrong with us? How did you come out so easily and do what we could not do? Listen to Jesus' answer in Mark 9, 29. This kind, he's talking about the strength and the effect of the dark side. This kind can come out only by, is the scripture behind me? What is it? Prayer. Prayer. Oppression of the dark side, Jesus said the answer is? Prayer. Are we getting it yet? Okay, here we go. Luke twenty two thirty one. 31. You guys know this story. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. Jesus had been trying to tell the disciples to pray. He took Peter, James, and John into the garden. He asked them to pray. He wasn't asking them to pray for him. He was asking them to pray for themselves. Who was the most mouthy of Jesus' disciples? Peter. Jesus said, tonight you're all going to leave me. And Peter said, hey, not old Pete, man. I'll stay with you all the way. The others may run. Pete will be with you. I'll be right, just like there. Wherever you go, I'll be right there with you. Now, whew, boy, I, I'm running out of time, but i got to tell you, I want to appeal back to something I told you last week. Remember that although Satan has been expelled from heaven, he still has access to God, like we saw in Job chapter 1. And he can still come before God. And why does he come? He comes for at least two reasons. Number one, he comes to accuse us. And number two, he comes to demand permission to bring damage into our lives like he did with Job. Jesus was not only human, he was God. He was not a human who became God. He was God who became human. And so obviously Jesus not only knew what was going on on earth, but he knew what was going on in heaven. So Peter's shooting off his mouth and saying to Jesus, Lord, the others may run off and leave you, but I'll go with you all the way to the cross. And Jesus said, Peter, come here, let me tell you something. I know something you don't know. 
Let me read it to you. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked, Greek word is demanded permission. Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. Well, we knew that night it was Satan was going to do everything he could to destroy Peter. I mean, Peter is going to like try to follow Jesus, and then he's going to implode right in front of everybody. Three times he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. One time he'll even cuss. He'll try to do something that's so unlike Jesus that everybody will just be sure that he's not with Jesus so that people will leave him alone. Satan doesn't know the future, but I think he knew that Jesus had great plans for Peter, and indeed he did. Fifty days after Jesus uh, resurrected, Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and preached, and 3,000 people got saved. Peter, uh, Satan knew that God had great plans for Peter, so what was he going to try to do? He's going to try to take him out on this night of Jesus' arrest. And Jesus said, Peter, I know something that you don't know. The dark side, the dark forces have demanded permission to sift you as wheat. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. I could keep us going for a good while, but I've given you three huge scriptures. The Lord's Prayer, Mark 9, 29, Jesus' exchange with Peter on the night of his arrest. Clearly, we can see from the Bible that prayer is a superhuman weapon. It is one of those divine weapons that God has given us to fight against the dark side, prayer. But now I owe it to you to be honest. Through the years I've always told you, you're not following a superhuman person. You're not following a great Christian. Prayer is a weakness for me. Prayer is a weakness in my life. It is not a normal thing. Marialis is in this service. Marialis is just, I mean, she is a person of great prayer. It just comes naturally for her. I am a fixer by nature. I'm a type A personality. I can't be still. A family member says Mark has two speeds, supersonic and off. And that's true. It is hard for me to do the one thing that prayer requires, to stop. To stop all the machinery. And talk to somebody I can't see. It is a challenge for me to pray. And I've had God answer many prayers in my life, but let me just tell you this. If I were sitting out there in this, in this service today and a minister was giving the talk that I'm giving to you, and if he were to ask a question, suppose he were to ask, how, many, how long did you spend in prayer yesterday versus how long you talked to people or how long you were on the Internet? Instantly, I get guilt feelings. Do I have anybody else like that? And let me, can I just tell you this? We don't, we don't use guilt at New Spring. Because guilt doesn't do anything, doesn't get us anywhere. But I think we ought to ask the question, why is it that we struggle with prayer? I think there are three reasons why we struggle with prayer. There are three questions that are in our minds that we can't get answers for. The first one is, is he there? Number two, can he help me? And number three, why didn't he the last time I prayed? Now, <laughs> I know that some of you are traditional Christians. At New Spring, we, we have a wide range of people who attend our services. And some of you grew, grew on up in church, and you heard that first one when I said, is he there? And you said, oh, that's not for me. That's not a problem. I know God's there. Really? Do we? I think this first one's bigger than we admit to ourselves. Because here's the deal. If you and I really believe that God was in our world, in our lives, 24 hours a day, could we really walk past him for a whole hour without talking? Or for half a day? For a whole day? We'll have, we have guests this weekend in, in our home. And, 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 you know, the thing that I think about guests is, you know, when, when you have a guest in your home, you want to do everything you can to let them know how much you value them. I mean, if you had a, if you, let's just put it this way. Even if you had somebody that was pretty much a stranger and they were sitting in your living room, you wouldn't walk past them all day long and never talk to them. I mean, we would at least do the American thing. We'd make small talk, right? 
I mean, the thing about it is, see, the reason why we walk past God all day long and we don't talk to him, we're struggling with, is he really there? Is he really there? Let's try this test for a moment. Let's say you were driving for 100 miles and someone's in your passenger seat. Could, could you drive for 100 miles and not, never say a word to that person? If you're a man, you might be able to do that. <laughs> no, seriously. You know? I mean, take for instance, suppose it was your favorite sports coach. Whatever your favorite sports team. Imagine the coach of your team sitting there in the car with you. My favorite coach is past now. He's with the Lord. It's Tom Landry, head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm a Cowboy fan. Just have pity on me, all right? Please. I got to have one conversation with Tom Landry in my life in a church in Euless, Texas. We were standing at the front, and I had a privilege of talking to Tom for a few minutes. And it's just, I can remember nearly every word he said. I mean, I was a lifelong fan of Tom, and, and really, we weren't talking about football. We were talking about church. We were building this building. You know what we talked about? We talked about this building. He was excited about what God was doing in our church. I, I think many times that is a precious thing. It's my favorite coach, and I have him for just a few moments. So suppose, suppose you have your favorite coach for, or your favorite player for 100 miles in the car with you. Or suppose it's your favorite person from entertainment. Or you're, you're a business type. You like business. You're interested in business. Suppose it's Jack Welch in the front seat with you or Peter Drucker in his prime. Suppose it was the best life coach in the country, the kind that costs thousands of dollars an hour, and, and you're trying to figure things out, and, and he or she's in the front seat of your car. Could you go 100 miles and just ignore the person? Suppose it was a philanthropist. Maybe you, do, do any of you, you probably don't have any bills, do you? Any of you have any bills, mortgages you're having trouble paying? Suppose a philanthropist sitting in the front seat, and he or she is looking for a person to help, and, and, and you're driving 100 miles with that person, and you got bills up to your hair, and, and here you are, and you got this philanthropist, he, he or she's just looking to spend money on somebody. I mean, could you go 100 miles and not say, hey, you know what, let me, let me, let me tell you what I'm up against. Suppose you're sick, and there's the physician next to you who's figured out the cure for whatever is ailing you or the member of your family. Suppose... Suppose you're having issues with your marriage, and the leading marriage therapist is sitting there in the car with you for 100 miles. Could you go 100 miles and just totally ignore or ignore him? Suppose it was the all-powerful, ever-living creator of the universe who has promised to supply all your needs. Could you ride 100 miles with him and never say a word? I promise you, you wouldn't ignore him. You see what I mean? We're just not sure he's there. And I know there's a spectrum here because there's some of you that would say, well, I am agnostic. I'm really not sure that there is a God. Or you could be an atheist and say, I've, I'm sure there's not a God. So one bracket would, might be that. All the way to the other side, there would be people like you and me who would say, yes, I know there is a God. I love him. I know who he is. He's been in my life. But the fact of the matter is, from time to time, I just forget he's there. Well, is he there? I mean, let's just settle this. Is God there? I mean, is he here today? Is he in your life? Is he, is he in your car? Is he in your home? Is he inside of you? Well, let's test that. You know, whenever I go into a place of business, there are signs of management. You know, restaurants, businesses, stores, car dealerships, they don't just spring up out of nowhere. There's signs of management, right? I mean, even in, coming into New Spring this morning, you look around, you, there, you, you know there are signs of management. You've formed an impression of what you think about the management of New Spring. 
There's science of management. We understand that. We, 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 make, we make decisions about where we shop, what we buy, how, what, you know, all, all the time because there's science of management. Well, let me just ask you this. When you think about the environment that we're in, in our world, does the world show signs of management? I mean, think about this. I mean, I don't have time to develop this, but you're smart. You, 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 can, you can process this. Think about plant life. Think about animal life. Think about the composition of the atmosphere. Think about the activities of the, the mass universe that we're in. I mean, think about your own body. I mean, we didn't even know about deoxyribonucleic acid until 1953. Watson and Crick discovered a long molecule. We didn't even know there was DNA. We just found it out a generation ago, and yet we don't even, still don't even understand it. All I'm trying to say to you is when you think about this world, it shows signs of management. And not only does it show signs of inception management, it shows signs of ongoing management. I, 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 was, I was born at night, but not last night. I know that someone is saying here, saying, oh, yeah, right, Mark, you're a Christian, you want to tell me that's God. It isn't God, it's natural, it's nature. Do you realize that's a backhanded, tacit admission that there is a God? You know why? You just articulated a single source of management. But I understand why you had to. You didn't have any choice. You didn't say, well, there's a, there's a source of management for plant life. There's a source of management for the universe. There's a source of management for the animal life. There's a source of management for uh, the human body. You know that. You, you can't, you, no one could articulate there are multiple sources of management. Why? Because they're all interdependent and interrelated. So you have to say it's nature, it's natural, but we don't know what nature or natural is. Those are invented terms. They're just semantic. Fact of the matter is, you can't ignore the fact that there is a sovereign God who is an extraordinary manager, and what it tells me is, yes, he not only was here, he is here. He is here. Is he there? Yeah, no doubt. Well, can he do anything about our issue? Well, I'd like to take a whole talk on this, but let me tell you some of the verses the Bible gives us. The Bible says nothing is impossible with God. Jesus said in Luke, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched hand. Nothing is too hard for you. Daniel 4, 35, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Well, the media doesn't understand that real well yet, but they'll get it someday. And my personal favorite, Zechariah 8, 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the people, but will it seem marvelous to me? God was promising people he was going to do something that was going to blow their minds, and the people were saying, is it really possible? And God is saying, look, when I do this, you're going to say, wow, that's huge. What God did was awesome, and you and I say those things sometimes. That's a God thing, and God is saying, just another day at the office for the one who calls the stars by name. Is he there? Can he do something? Why didn't he? Let's set that aside for a few moments. Let's recap. You're in warfare. You're against a powerful enemy. And make no mistake about it, he has an agenda in your life. In fact, one of the verses of the Bible that we'll look at later in this series, God tells us that we need to be aware of his thinking, his strategies, because if we're not, we'll be victimized. What is his agenda? No less authority than Jesus himself gives it to us in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief, that Satan, comes only for three reasons, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his agenda with your family, with your life, with your marriage, with your career, steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes, and, and 
wow, and I wish I had, had time to talk about this. Sometimes you're going to be up against a stronghold. I'm just telling you what my life is like, and I'm guessing your life is like this too. I have the garden variety pressure from Satan, and then every once in a while, I'll get under a major attack. I'll get the sense that he's demanded permission from God, and he really turns up the heat in my life. And some of you are there today. He's turned up the heat, and you're against a stronghold. Maybe it's conduct in your life. Maybe it's the conduct of someone you love. Maybe it's a problem that you just can't get a resolution for. Maybe you just feel like you're at a... You know, you just feel like you're up against a wall trying to get a job or, or some issue in your life, and you're up against a stronghold. My whole thought for you today in this talk is prayer is a divine weapon. After you have submitted yourself to God's will, pray. Pray before you're under attack. Pray when you're under attack. And folks, learn to love this verse. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Those three thoughts are mammoth. God says, look, call me. Call me when you get in, in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will come back and give me value. That's the plan. But just keeping it real here, I do other things in the day of trouble. I rack my brain for a fix. I go to pieces. Lord knows I worry. And sometimes I say, God, it's your fault. But God doesn't say, blame me when things go wrong, and I'll help you, and then you'll honor me. He says, look, when, when the day of trouble comes, and by the way, you will recognize it when it comes. So if you're struggling with what does the day of trouble mean, there will be a day when you and I both will understand it clearly. God says, when the day of trouble comes, dial me up, call me, I will deliver you, and you will give me glory. You will value me. I, uh, I told you a few moments ago that I struggle with prayer. And uh, I pray a lot, most of the time while I'm in motion. But I'm also a very pragmatic person, and it gets in the way sometimes of my faith in an everlasting God who can do the extraordinary. Uh, you'll remember, a lot of you who attend New Spring, you'll remember I was in a series last spring called uh, Red Letters. And it was our last watermark weekend, Ryan Morris and I were talking about uh, what I was going to preach about that weekend. He was getting ready for the worship service. And I said, Ryan, I don't think I'm actually going to use a statement of Jesus. I just want to talk about Jesus the healer. I don't know if any of you remember that week. And in the Saturday services, I preached the service twice. I, I took the text from Luke about two people who needed Jesus' help in simultaneous situations. There was a a man, a ruler of a synagogue, had a 12-year-old girl who was dying. He came to Jesus, and he said, would you help me? Would you, my little girl's dying. Would you, would you come and heal her? And Jesus said, I, I will come. And while he was on his way to help this little 12-year-old girl, a woman who was in the crowd who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and couldn't get any better, and every time she went to the doctor, she got worse, she saw Jesus coming, and she remembered an Old Testament verse that said there would be healing in the Messiah's wings, and she said, if I can just touch the wings or the hem of his garment, even secretly, she said, I'll be, I'll be healed. And you remember she touched the bottom of his robe, and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And you remember all that, and Jesus said, great is your faith, and you're healed. And so I preached the service, and, and I did my best. I tried to explain it. And, and when I leave the stage, I mean, I, I walk off the stage here, and I go out that door, and I make the circle, and I go back to my office. And I, I'm just going to tell you on Saturday night what I was thinking. I was thinking, what was that sermon about? Because I honestly think about you listening to the talk, and I think about 
You know, I, I'm never satisfied. If I, if, if, when I get through with the talk, if I walk away and I don't think you've got something that you can put to work instantly in your life, it's going to trouble me. And I thought, I, I talked about how that Jesus healed some people nearly 2,000 years ago, but, but what did that mean to my audience tonight? What does it mean in my life? And um, I got to my office over here, and Mary Alice met me, and Mary Alice said, Mark, there's a, there's a little girl that's been in a really, really bad accident, and, and uh, there's a good chance she's not going to make it through the night. She's up in the hospital. She said, I know you're exhausted, but I just want to tell you about this. So instantly I got in my car and drove up to the hospital and, and met with the family and ICU unit. And uh, the 33 years of, of being a pastor, I don't know anything about medicine, but I've been to the hospital hundreds of times and, and I formed impressions and opinions about what I see. And I saw her in the ICU unit and uh, my first thought is, she's not going to make it. But I did my best to be encouraging to the family that I've known and loved for a lot of years. And, and we had a prayer. And it's the kind of prayer that pastors have with people. And it was sincere and it was meaningful. We were in the room. It's got medical personnel in the room, the family in the room. I think we held hands around her bed and, and I prayed. And I'm, I'm sure that like a Christian, I prayed the kind of prayer language that we pray. And I meant it. And then we stepped out of the room and I talked for a few moments with the family and started to walk down the hall and I would give almost anything if I could remember why I did this. For some reason, I went back into the room and I realized I was the only person in the room with Megan. She was on the bed there in ICU. And I thought to myself, I just preached about Jesus raising a 12-year-old girl. And I reached down and I took Megan's arm in my hand and I prayed, I think, the most personal prayer I've ever prayed to Jesus. And here's how it went. Lord, if you're what I just told people you are, you could do something here. Well, that's some prayer, isn't it? <laughs> Man, there's not much stained glass. In fact, I, I, called, I, didn't, I didn't call him Jesus. Lord, I called him Jesus. I said, Jesus, if you are what, you, what the Bible says you are, you could do something here. Because honestly, I, I, I thought it was all over. And I left the room. I'd love to tell you that I had great faith, but I didn't. I got back to church, and a lot of you in the 930 service will remember that when I brought the message the next, the next for the Sunday morning services, I'll tell you, it was a totally different message. And, and I shared with you, I said, there's a little 11-year-old New Spring girl who needs a miracle from God today, and some of you prayed. But I, I got to tell you, I didn't have a great deal of hope. But after a while, I started hearing stories from the family that, that yes, indeed, she was doing better. And, and I remember that she had some movement in her arm, and her mom was telling the doctor. The doctor said, oh, you shouldn't, shouldn't read too much into that. It's just autonomic response. And he said, you know, I, I, can, I can cause her to move her arm. And, he, and I think he pinched her a couple times on her arm. And after a few moments, she just pushed his hand away. And I mean, all kinds of things began to happen. She just got better. I mean, we're talking about just a miracle. In fact, there was a moment when her mom left the room. She pulled her feeding tube out, and her mom said, can you talk? And she said, I love you, Mommy. <laughs> and when the time came to take her to uh, a rehab hospital, she, she decided she was going to walk to the wheelchair. And I mean, she just started doing great, and, and uh, we just knew it was a miracle. I want to read you an email from a new Springer, okay? Because it puts context to this. Mark, this past weekend, I was at the service when you asked New Spring for prayers for the little girl who needed a miracle. I'd never heard you do that before, and I was almost upset with you for asking us all to pray for her. 
I was overcome with emotion and tears and had to get up and leave to compose myself in the restroom. See, I was one of the trauma nurses on the team that cared for her when she first came in. I saw this 11-year-old girl, the same age as my youngest son, lying there breathless with head injuries so bad there was actual brain matter coming out of her head. We've had children, even adults, come in with head injuries less than what she suffered that, uh, that died, and I felt her situation was hopeless. I even prayed that she make it long enough to perhaps be an organ donor. I've been a nurse for 18 years. I've never seen a child recover from this extensive of a head injury. So when you ask us to pray for the girl, my thought was, no, he has it wrong. We should be praying for her family, not her. She's already in God's hands. When I returned to work the following week, I watched closely. She even got worse. I usually make it a point to introduce myself to the parents and let them know if there's anything to call me, and I give them my phone number. However, I didn't do that with her parents. Every time I thought about it, I, I was in fear. I would just fall apart in front of them because I couldn't get what she looked like that night in my trauma bay out of my mind. On Thursday, when I went to work and made rounds with our trauma team, I could not believe not only her progress, but what she was able to do in such a short time. I thought about you asking us to pray and how you did have it right. Today, when you updated New Spring, I thought to myself that you and I may be the only ones that really know the power of prayer, the only ones that really know how grim it truly was. 18 years of not just nursing, but intensive care nursing, trauma nursing, and teaching others how to save lives. Never have I seen this happen like it has for her. I feel not only blessed for her and her family, but blessed that I was able to witness God's healing in the power of prayer. Well, could I tell you, you're very fortunate today. Because of the four services, this is the service where Megan is here. I was asking her if I could tell her story before I could get the question out. She said, permission granted. And then I said, Megan, would you stand up and wave to everybody? She said, I'd like to come up on stage and wave and think, would you like to see Megan this morning? Come on up, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Feel like praying yet? I know I'm out of time, but I promised you a third question, didn't I? Why didn't he? Because some of us have asked God for a miracle like that, and it didn't happen. One of the most famous Christians of all time, I would argue outside of Jesus, the most successful Christian of all time, had a problem, and he asked God to help him, and God said no. But I want to read it to you because it tells us what we need to understand. Paul said, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, Messenger there is the Greek word angelos. We got our word angel from it. Paul said, what I had going on in my flesh, whatever his problem was, and we don't know what it is, it was demonic. To torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. Now guys, I've always tried to keep it real. Someday you're going to ask God for something, and you're a Christ follower, and you're, you're going to know you're under attack, and you're going to say, God, take it away. God, would you heal me? Would you heal that member of my family? 
God, would you put my marriage back together? God, would you get me that job back that I lost? And we will ask God, and we will ask God, and the answer will be, not this time. But here's what God said to Paul. When you get a thorn of Satan, a messenger of Satan, and you ask God to take it away, God said, I promise you, my grace will be enough. Now here, boy, I wish I didn't know 30 minutes, okay? I'm going to try to get this out in 30 seconds. Grace means gifts. When you have Satan's attack in your life and God refuses for some reason in his wisdom to take it away, he says, don't look at the thorns, look for my gifts. How many of us know exactly what that means? You had a situation, and you asked God to change it, and he didn't change it. But you look back and you say, I wouldn't trade that situation for anything in the world. Why? Because I got to know God better. I have felt his presence. Yes, I made it through the divorce, but I felt the presence of God. Yes, I made it through the death of my loved one, but God was there. I felt his love. And that's why I'm telling you, always pray. Just like the Bible says, pray all the time, all kinds of prayers. Pray about everything. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for your spiritual leader. Why? Because it is a weapon that has the power to pull down strongholds. Do you believe that today? Well, I'm out of time and I gotta quit. I'll pick this up next week with part three of It's Not a Fair Fight. But you know, I would just close by saying sometime you'll ask God for something and he'll say, no, I've got a purpose in it, but my, my grace will be there. You know, there was a time when your Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, staring at the cross, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not, your, not my will, but your will be done. And you know that Jesus went on to the cross and the reason why he went to the cross was your sin and my sin. The blood that came out of Jesus' body was the currency that paid for our sins. What are you going to do with your sin? That's what keeps us from going to heaven. And you say, well, I'm better than most people, but one sin's enough to keep us out of heaven. Most of us committed that before the meat of our memory started running. You can't get rid of your sin by joining a church or giving money or trying to turn over a new leaf. There's an old song we used to sing when I was a kid. What could wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I mean, God said no to Jesus so that Jesus would go to the cross and pay for your sins and my sins. So that all of us, you know what? It's a gift. That's, that's what these people have talked about in baptism today. It's a gift. When you ask Jesus to come into your life, he does. It's a prayer. You talk about a prayer that defeats the dark side. When you pray to receive Christ, God washes your sins away and makes you God's child. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I've been religious, or maybe you haven't been religious, but you're saying, I get it, man. I get it. Jesus loves me. It's a gift. I want it. Well, then let's ask for it, all right? Everybody praying. If you're, if you're here today and you say, I want Jesus in my life, I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. These aren't magic words. I'll pray it slowly. You can repeat it with me, or you can do your own variation or whatever. What matters is what you mean in your heart. You ready? Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. I hate it when I do wrong, but I can't help myself. I can't pay for my sin, and even when I try to be perfect, I can't. But I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe his blood paid for my sin. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask Jesus to come into my life and save me, forgive me, 
Make me God's child. In Jesus' name.